Are we going through an AI hype cycle? Of course we are. However, let me get this straight to draw the lines between being skeptic, which is what I think smart business people do, especially when it comes to understanding the limitations, drawback, and also the dangers of current technology, which can be transformational, and actually being cynic, so dismissing everything that is happening around. So in this episode, I'm going to focus on the things that I think are hyped in this cycle of AI and the things that instead are quite interesting to look at and make sure that we can understand what's going on. If you look at the current AI ecosystem, this has become now the latest hot thing. And myself, I've been, you know, talking a lot about this AI thing. But, you know, honestly, I've been working in this industry for years now. It, uh, it is since the end of 2016 that I've been working in this industry at various levels. So, of course, the excitement to me uh, has come as actually being able to see the evolution of a technology that didn't work at all to something that commercially was quite exciting. So that's where the excitement is coming from. And so that's why, that's why I started also the reporting of the evolution of the AI industry through this podcast, which otherwise I always have done through my blog, which is for Week MBA, and through the newsletter, which is called The Business Engineer. Now, having said that, what are the things that uh, are quite hype right now and, uh, you know, Honestly, as a business person, I wouldn't focus on, but being aware of. So the first thing is AGI. You know, there is a lot of talk about around about, you know, this AGI. Uh, it's one of the first questions that probably journalists ask when they got to interview like a business leader in the AI industry. But honestly, to me, that is the least interesting thing. First of all, because I honestly don't think that uh, this current level architecture of AI might be able to reach AGI, also because in the first place, we don't even know the old nuances of intelligence ourselves, meaning that we don't even have a definition of the many dimensions of intelligence that exist right now. So we have such a limited, a limited understanding of our own intelligence that now calling something AGI, it wouldn't make much sense. Now, where are we going to get there? Who knows? And honestly, again, uh, on my perspective, I think this is not an important business question. It's important though also to draw the lines, meaning that we need to actually start always from the assumption that machines are machines and will always be so. So this is the correct assumption to me, because instead many in this industry, especially many that are leading this revolution, this AI revolution, believe that you know AGI not only is something that is going to be achieved for sure, but it's something that we might achieve with the current paradigm. And this is extremely dangerous because if those people who are in charge of the co top companies who are actually playing a key role in this AI industry, the main, danger, the, the main danger here is that we might structure in the future society around this belief that there is this AGI, which is going to be more a religious belief than a reality in the business world. So this is a key danger that as a business person I want to be aware of. So that's where my skepticism comes from. So every time that, you know, I hear about uh, talks about AGI, I get turned off because this is not the point. And, you know, I think if we are starting from the assumption that AGI is going to be achieved and can be achieved much more easily than we think, 
I believe that this is really the wrong way to, to start this whole discussion because, again, we are just assuming that machines can be, uh, you know, um, like humans or even better, but without even understanding how we actually are, are made of. So uh, I already explained and I'm going to connect this to another point, which is uh, consciousness. Another key point, of course, a high point is about consciousness. And again, I explained in a previous episode how there are probably two schools of thoughts here. There is a school of thought which is actually probably pretty much um, the, the main one in Silicon Valley where, you know, they, they say that um, consciousness may be primarily the result and a side effect of the near connections that we have in our brain. So as a result of a complex system, and the result of scale of those connections in a complex system, we may get from very simple interactions like a neural level, a very small scale, you may get such complex interactions that as a side effect, you get consciousness. So according to this theory, consciousness is actually a side effect of the physical world, not vice versa. Now, as someone who loves complex system, who has studied them in the business world, who understands a scale, and actually is in love with the concept of scale. It's probably one of the few obsessions that I have throughout my adult professional life. I also do understand the huge limitation of this kind of theory, where we give for granted that consciousness is just a side effect of uh, you know neural connections scaling up. If that is the case, then what we are is just a bunch of neural connections, and therefore everything that we do. Also, consciousness can be replicated by a huge uh, supercomputer. So that's also where it's very important to you know, frame this in the current context. That's also why right now many uh, leading you know, um, AI uh, entrepreneurs believe that the current level of AI can get to AGI. Those two things are connected because if you do believe that you know, consciousness is actually a side effect of of um, uh, you know neural connections scaling up into your brain, therefore you do believe that the consciousness comes from a physical place. Again, here is not a matter of uh, uh, religion; it's more a matter of uh, philosophy. I interviewed on the blog Federico Fagin, who I highly respect, who has been the father of the microprocessor, and as uh, someone highly technical, he comes to a different theory of consciousness, where consciousness is not effect of a physical world but instead is a effect is a the effect of a uh, is actually uh, within quantum realm he calls it you know a sort of qu- quantum phenomenon which is present only in organic uh, you know in uh, in um, organic uh, um, livings according to to uh, federico fagin who explained to me you know this this uh, this uh, theory of uh, consciousness. According to this theory, of course, consciousness is not something that comes as a result of the physical world, it's vice versa, meaning that the consciousness gives rises to the physical world, and that each of us is going to have its own, his, her own experience of consciousness, which is different for each of us, and it's very hard actually even to measure because we can describe it, we can actually connect to our inner self and try to describe what we feel, but uh, it's very hard to actually get a measure on that. So from a scientific standpoint, it also shifts a little bit the perspective. But, you know, things that are harder to measure doesn't necessarily mean that they are not real or they are not important, quite the opposite. So this is a second point. Third point is about human versus machine. Again, I think this is the wrong discussion. Uh, It gets a lot of coverage in the news. uh, It's something that can be hyped quite easily. 
But it's strong in strong uh, discussion if you followed so far the thread of thoughts. You understand that again. Here we need to understand how the eye can actually amplify ourselves in doing things much better, much faster, much more uh, effectively. As a business person, as an entrepreneur, I love the idea of um, uh, AI enhancing us because it uh, enables us to actually build much linear organization that can reach way more people. That's the interesting thing to me. As someone who likes to experiment, you know, understand how users and consumers behave or like people behave once they, uh, you know, play with your product. It's quite interesting to me to live in a world where we can build products and software products much more easily by having AI write the code, bug the code, uh, you know, um, fix the code on deploy the code and so forth. Uh, together, of course, with the, with the, the help of uh, smart um, the developers. So the interesting part to me is, again, you can do many more things at uh, software development level, at also amplification of a company, because imagine that tomorrow you're going to have an assistant, uh, an AI assistant, which is going to be also partly your accountant, is going to be partly your HR, is going to be partly, you know, different kinds of people in the organization. And then you can have a single person interfacing with the AI, which again enables you to build as much linear organization that can reach way more people. So you're going to be still creating a huge amount of value for a lot of, a uh, huge number of people, but with a small organization. And this is interesting to me because if you're able to preserve the market in a way that it doesn't get monopolized by a few companies that limit competition, you might get into a place where actually uh, AI becomes the enabler for a huge amount of, uh, uh, you know, en entrepreneur uh, people. So you're going to get many smaller uh, entrepreneur, uh, uh, lean organization that uh, are in the marketplace, which are able to actually give more and more niche products to many more people. Because with the AI, again, you can customize the experience on a product at the level that you can uh, offer like much more niche solutions. That's the interesting part to me. So uh, again, the, the key points here also to understand is that we may reach very easily some plateaus when it comes to the current architecture because we don't know for sure what is going on. What is going on? We can expect that we might be able to get to a few more achievements, like for instance, multimodality, which would be already an incredible achievement, meaning that you know those uh, generative models become able to handle multi multiple formats from uh, from audio, text, video, or three um, uh, D, and so forth which if you're ready, we get there in the next you know, couple of years or like, let's say five years, it's a huge achievement because from a business standpoint, it means that the software, software world and a combination of hardware and software becomes way better. So it becomes way better from a business application standpoint. But of course, it's also true that we might hit important plateaus that might stop the development of the, the AI industry from a commercial standpoint in the coming years. Another huge risk, of course, is about misinformation. It's a huge risk because when you get something, as I explained in many episodes previously, you know, again, ChatGPT is incredible. It's one of the most exciting things that have happened in the, in the last years. But, you know, if scaled up uh, without uh, consideration about what, what, how much misinformation can create, actually it might be quite, uh, quite dangerous, especially because it's a kind of tool that anyone can, uh, can, uh, can use. And that the way it has been programmed, the way it has been actually developed, uh, this tool uh, it doesn't uh, have to be factual necessarily. Of course, as I explained in previous episodes, there are some guardrails that they've been used in ChatGPT, like uh, a model called InstaGPT, where they actually used uh, human in the loop training to actually make the output much more uh, truthful. On the other side, is not uh, the scope of uh, the, the, the large language model to be truthful in the first place. This can be achieved later on through fine tuning or through human in the loop approaches or actually making 
the, the fine-tuned data that we give to the model and the examples that we get from users much better at very specific tasks. So we need to actually narrow them down if we want to make them safer, which of course reduces their ability to be more creative. So on the one side, there is this uh, huge trade-off right now for those uh, large generative models where if you actually put too many guardrails, the model is going to lack uh, enough capabilities to actually do many things. And then if you instead leave the model unleashed, then you're going to get also a lot of misinformation potentially spread at scale. So those are the limitations. Now, once we tackle those and we made sure that we understand all the where the hype is, uh, is uh, getting shaped around, so things like, again, like AGI, consciousness, human versus machine, um, we do and we do understand the limitations like you know the plateaus that we can hit and the misinformation that can be spread through the use of those tools now we can get to talk about the serious stuff which is the kind of business architecture that can develop around the AI and the business architecture is incredibly important to understand which I already explained in many previous episodes like about how the three layers of AI are developing and now you build for instance competitive modes at the various layers because you need to understand how you can build a competitive business on top of AI. As I already explained, again, the business architecture AI right now is, is developing around three main layers, which is the foundational layer where you get, you know, very large uh, generative models like GPT-3 or DALI or stable diffusion and so forth. And then you get a middle layer where you get very specialized AI engines like, you know, the AI accountant, the AI HR, the AI consultant, whatever who are, you know, much more well um, suited for specific tasks and for replicating specific corporate tasks. And then you got the application layer, which is instead anything that uh, uh, is, uh, is uh, you know, can be provided as a service to either B2B or like to consumer level. At this level, of course, what matters a lot is the UX and the network effects. So if we go from the foundational layer to the middle and business application layer, each of those layers will have its own AI modes, meaning that the foundational layer might have as a mode a lot of computing power because they're going to need a lot of supercomputers in order to keep improving those large models. They're going to need uh, a lot of technology and understanding of these, uh, you know, this technology because they will, they will need to keep scaling them through different kind of approaches. So more data, better data, uh, more parameters, better parameters, train for longer, shorter, and so forth. And then uh, on the other side, of course, there is also uh, a distribution aspect where if you have a distribution model that enables this foundational layer to make a substantial amount of money with high margins, they can reinvest those money in R&D, which can be used to actually improve the technology quite quickly, which other companies like Google or Facebook have done in the last you know, 10, 15, 20 years to actually being on top of their game. So that's the mode for the foundational layer. For the middle layer, how do you build a mode? Yeah, of course, you can go on and build a foundational engine as well, which may be too expensive and not as effective. Or you can quite quickly tap into existing foundational engines. And I already explained in previous episodes how if you're in a middle layer, so if you're building, let's say, an AI uh, accountant or an AI lawyer, you want to tap into the foundational layer and you have the advantage that you can be agnostic meaning that in the future you can tap into multiple kinds of models so you don't you don't need to work just with OpenAI you can work with OpenAI with Stability AI uh, with uh, Unos Google and then Amazon uh, Apple so forth so on and so forth but we might assume that in the foundational layer we're going to get like probably 10 players will be the top uh, that will represent you know the the, the main uh, market shares for the whole industry 
In the middle layer, again, you can tap into those uh, various models, and then you can build engines on top of those models that will be able to reshuffle a little bit of the capabilities of each of those models to actually make them and fine-tune them to be very specific at, at uh, various tasks. So again, if you are developing like any lawyer, imagine that you have a database that you've been, you've been curating a lot that is uh, fetched into the machine, especially to fine-tune it in, on specific regulations, and then you're going to get, therefore, an AI lawyer that is very well aware and you know, skilled in specific regulations. That's how you're going to build your competitive mode. And then on the other side, of course, by developing like distribution, network effects, and branding. And then if you're at business application layer, my main argument here is that, again, here, what are you going to do? You're going to plug into what foundational layers can offer you. And uh, on the other side, you're going to be building your key competitive advantage on UX branding and distribution and network effects so the ability to get as many users as possible quickly improve the product with iterations that otherwise other layers cannot do because their interactions with the customer is uh, as way more uh, way less touch points compared to what you can do as a business application so this is the business architecture and it's quite interesting and from a business modeling standpoint again it's also quite interesting to understand how you're going to be able to make money. I explained already, go back to the previous episodes, there is the business modeling of OpenAI, the partnership between OpenAI and Microsoft, how they're making it, they will make money out of it, the business model of stability, AI, and they'll cover more in the future. But right now, again, if you're building an AI business at the foundational layer, it's primarily getting structured by making money through cloud computing, through consumption of the APIs, and through most probably premium subscription, for instance, for something like ChatGPT, if it becomes like a consumer level product. In the middle layer, you may make money just like SaaS companies make money today through subscription, uh, um, you know, um, um, consumption, and then again, consulting. And then at business application level, again, you can make money uh, the same way, like through subscription, consumption, uh, or like through probably advertising. Those will be all models that we'll see developing on top of the industry. Nothing so special or different compared to the to the web industry today. Of course, there will be different questions, question marks and actually new business modeling that will be probably developing on top of it while you might be able to actually uh, monetize much better the uh, let's say the edge generated content if there is like a workflow and an attribution model that enables you know um, the 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 creator economy that is going to rise on top of the eye to actually uh, you know provide opt-in and out from the the language models training and then use the same uh, opted-in uh, you know uh, data that has been used for instance to train the model imagine the case of stability AI trained on uh, various styles of various artists or like AI artists which can be used to actually further improve the model if it gets used by users then you can monetize it through an attribution model that enables you to sell your own copyright uh, as users actually um, you know start using your, your own style so it's business ecosystem that uh, is developing is quite interesting again uh, there are some major drawbacks which I hope we're going to figure out and uh, there are also some major risks that uh, hope uh, that uh, uh, so especially those who are in charge of the regulation understand the major limitations and they still enable like innovation but at the same time they put some bricks at very important levels especially when this technology starts to go to you know 
potentially a billion users. But then on the other side, there is also the interesting part of the business architecture that we're creating, the business ecosystem, and the kind of industry that we may be able to create in the future. And again, as a business person, it's quite exciting because you can build a much smaller, leaner AI app, what I like to call like an AI organization, which is much smaller, which can get to too many people, uh, many users across the world. And at the same time, uh, we can have way more entrepreneurs doing this kind of work. Thank you.